with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. On today's show, China's tech innovation fuels its economic growth, and China's central bank cuts its benchmark lending rates for the first time in ten months. And now, let's begin with our top story. One of the key areas in today's world competition is in science, technology, and innovation. China ranked 11th on the Global Innovation Index in the year 2022, atop the middle-income economies. Chinese inventors filed more than three million patents in the same year. So, what are the driving forces of China's science and technology innovation? In what way can tech innovation drive the country's economy? And what does China's tech innovation mean for the world? For more on this, join us on the line now are Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, Aina, first of all, we know that China is now at the forefront of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and quantum computing. So, what do you think are the driving forces of China's tech innovation in recent years? There's two.、Uh, one is just the natural、um, response to market.、Uh, China has, has succeeded by answering the needs of its customers. Applied technology is one of the areas where China has excelled,、uh, and also cost-efficient manufacturing.、Uh, these cluster developments, where they,、uh, you know, they have everything that you possibly need to、uh, build either, you know, computers or phones, etc., consumer appliances. Have made it very, very good. Plus, all of the、uh, logistics、uh, that are out there,、uh, the infrastructure that China has is unparalleled in terms of, you know, port access, road, rail, you name it. So they've been very, very successful. The second part is,、uh, unfortunately,、uh, the situation where、uh, U.S. in particular, but with、um, the cooperation of、uh, countries in Europe, are trying to deny China the ability to access. Uh, especially computer processor chips, and that has driven indigenous、uh, innovation, where、um, Chinese companies are trying to figure out workarounds,、uh, new ways of creating technology that、uh, can support their、uh, products. So, then, what do you think are the driving forces of China's tech innovation? And some say China's tech innovation have been made in factories, not labs. What do you think? And、China's innovation path is certainly very different from the Western economies.、Uh, for one thing,、uh, China's consumer profile is extremely different.、Uh, in the past 30 years, as we can observe, Chinese consumers actually are not only hyper-adaptive but also hyper-adoptive. And they do care about quality, but in the beginning of the innovation phase, they are more tolerant about the products. And、um, they want to see more variety of things, and that's one main driving force for all kinds of different products.、Uh, not just in consumer electronics, but also in things like、uh, new energy vehicles.、Uh, at the same time, there is also a、uh, lot investment behind artificial intelligence and、uh, quantum computing. A lot of it is applied in the consumer sector and also in manufacturing. So、mm-hmm. altogether, it just seems that China is in the right stage. 
to mass adopt a lot more technology than the Western economies. Mm. So, Anna, so how would you assess China's innovation capability? In the past, people say Chinese companies learn from others, but is that the case that, uh, you know, some multinational or companies from other countries are now beginning to learn from Chinese ones? China has, as I said, a tremendous capacity to tremendous capacity to apply technology and to make consumer products that people want. I mean, the case in point, when she mentions EVs, you have Tesla, which has, you know, four or five uh, different models versus BYD, which has probably 34. And BYD is winning because it's giving customers what they want, not telling them you should just like this because it's a big brand. So this is, uh, in a nutshell, the strategy that uh, China has. And in terms of uh, innovation capability, it's proving itself. China is doing it. It's not capabilities, it's results. Mm -hmm. So Dan, so you are an economist. For China's economy, we always say tech and innovation, emerging industries, or high-end and smart manufacturing. And Chinese companies are very forward-looking investment in the 5G robotics, et cetera, et cetera. So why is this enthusiasm, do you think? Um, from the economic perspective, productivity is always the key in long-term economic growth and short-term efficiency. And every industry now in China has a high demand for automation and artificial intelligence-related functions. Sometimes it's really AI, sometimes it's machine learning. Uh, like the automation requirement in manufacturing using industrial robots, uh, like the risk control in finance, or the consumer profiling in the e-commerce industry. Um, there's a widespread demand and also scenarios that require more input in this front. And besides that, there's also on the macroeconomic level, we need self-sufficiency in key technologies because the decoupling is real for chips and other high tech. And now there is strong state backing for investment into this sector, but still uh, the private sector will have to step up if we really want to be globally competitive. Mm. So Aina, earlier you mentioned Chinese tech giant Huawei is actually remained a large filer of patents. And this is even under the background of the US ban. So what does it say about Huawei and its future development? And which areas are their patents uh, mainly in? Huawei has uh, been leading the charge. They were the leader in 5G. Uh, they're going on to the next stage, which is 6G. Uh, the issue there is that they were more hardware focused. They basically lost a large portion of their phone business, although they are hoping to get some of it back when they uh, start developing using their seven nanometer uh, chips that they're out there. It's going to be a little bit more expensive, but it's something they want to do. In terms of areas where Huawei is excelling, it's uh, been doing things in agriculture to improve the efficiency of farming, bringing down the cost of bringing food to the table. It's been doing it very well in the cloud uh, area where it provides services. And I think in the future, it'll be service in the cloud where instead of having very, very smart phones, you'll have phones that can uh, handle information and communications with the cloud, basically giving you a supercomputer in your hand. Uh, they've also been very instrumental in uh, developing self-driving software. 
Um, but if you if I was going to quantify their overall approach, they're now balancing uh, a lot more software development with their in addition to the hardware the types of things. And the, the main issue and why they're succeeding is because they have 100,000 of the best and brightest minds in the world, not just China, the mm -hmm. entire world. They have uh, research, research and development centers all over the world, and they continue to use those to come up with new ideas, new solutions. And that's always the key. There's always going to be new problems. The question is, do you have a team capable of making new solutions? Mm. And then so also on the solar technology, the U.S. imposed the various rounds of tariffs on the Chinese products, but still it's failed to dislodge Chinese firms from their dominant position in the solar industry globally. So how do you explain? that and what does it tell us for china's solar industry it has followed a very different path um, in the past 15 years we have seen this rapid consolidation in the industry uh, in the beginning there were tons of uh, private companies state-owned companies getting into the battlefield and eventually only a handful of them survived so those companies have probably the best capacity in the world uh, in terms of manufacturing and cost control also, in the past five years, we saw this new trend of mergers and acquisitions of China's solar company in overseas market. So now, if we only count on the mainland production capacity, China is more than half of the global capacity already. And overseas mergers and acquisition give China another 40% of the global capacity. So now it's a real mon monopolistic power uh, in this industry. Usually when we think about monopoly, we think about market pricing power. But for this industry, uh, it's different. Uh, each company's profit margin is actually quite thin. China as a whole has the global dominant power. But within this industry, the competition is fierce, actually drives down the profit margin by a lot. So the consumers still benefit. And a short summary is uh, the U.S. really cannot get around China to uh, buy the solar panels from any other suppliers if they want to reach their climate change goals. Mm. So Aina, so we mentioned the U.S. chip restrictions and we also mentioned the solar industry. So is the decoupling happening in the tech world between the world's two largest economy? At the higher level, I mean, um, if you still, if you look at goods, uh, finished goods, whether it's computers or cell phones or things like that, it's really the only the chips that they're talking about, the processing chips, a certain degree of memory and things like uh, memory chips as well. Uh, the rest of the components are being made in China or in, uh, elsewhere in Asia. And they're being, you know, the components can be shipped anywhere and then they can be assembled. So, I mean, the, you know, the separation is kind of happening, but it, in, a, in much smaller areas than it looks like. However, uh, long term, you know, this meeting in, um, in Europe uh, where they're talking in Germany, they're talking about this de-risking. Mm. Well, if people ask me, what, what is the difference between decoupling and de-risking? I tell them de-risking means a, a unilateral decoupling. So in the response is always going to be, well, if you're afraid of my supply chains, I become afraid of your supply chains. So I'm not going to rely on yours and you're not going to rely on mine. That in essence is decoupling. So th this is one of the, the great fears that I have is that what you're doing at a time of economic uh, need, I mean, the, the world is in crisis. Uh, you have uh, countries acting in essence to raise the cost to their consumers. And th this is 
you know, it doesn't make any logical sense. But, you know, right now things are short on logic and long on emotion. Mm. And then so China is now taking measures to boost the technological self-sufficiency in the uh, 14th five-year plan. So how do you look at that and what efforts are making and how will China boost the self-sufficiency while at the same time further integrating into the global market? One big effort is to increase the investment in high-tech sector. Uh, in 2022, the high-tech manufacturing uh, fixed asset investment grew by 23%, way higher than any other manufacturing sectors. And for the total R&D spending, most of it is state-backed, but the private sector also are piling up. Uh, a lot of the VC and PEs are behind this effort. Um, because local government are setting up a government guidance fund and trying to attract long-term strategic investors from the private industry. And then once the innovation is successful, it doesn't even need to be commercially successful as long as it's there and has a potential, then the investors can all benefit uh, and have some very profitable short-term returns. So this investment model has been driving a lot more capital away from the software consumer tech to the hard tech used in manufacturing. I think that probably will lay the foundation for China's supply chain strength uh, mm. in the decades to come. Mm. So Aina, so how do you think will China boost the self-sufficiency while at the same time further integrating itself into the global market? agree with Dan Dan. I mean, this is a situation where China is uh, simultaneously innovating at the, at the same time that it's driving costs down by being more efficient. So um, that's going to be China's strength, you know, especially dinner, during an economic downturn. You know, nobody has money to invest in new plants, uh, you know, in factories. Um, during times like this, they just say, no, it's not worth it. Things are too uncertain. That means that China's existing capabilities will be relied on more and then, so talking about innovation power, how technology will reshape the global landscape, do you think? Uh, in the long run, technology is the ultimate driving force for economic growth. And it's true for any type of economies. And we have seen that the global fertility has been going down. It's not just China, but in India, in the US, in Europe, uh, it's a global phenomenon. And part of it is the relatively pessimistic outlook for the global economy. And part of it, it just transition in the population structure. So when we don't have the power of population growth and capital growth has always been there, but we cannot count on it too much since the capital intensive technology uh, cannot drive innovation or growth forever. But for technology itself, it can really reshape uh, the industrial landscape, uh, especially now Europe and China in particular are making a great effort transitioning into this decarbonization economy. And that requires a lot more technology and different type of industry, different type of company, and even different type of financing. So eventually we'll have to rely on this new model of the economy to drive the new growth. The old mm -hmm. engines just simply don't work anymore. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll look at the cuts China's central bank made to its benchmark lending rates. Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard. 
economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. China's central bank has cut its benchmark lending rates for the first time in 10 months. The People's Bank of China, or the PBOC, trimmed its one-year and five-year loans prime rates by 10 basis points. Analysts say the cuts should offer some support for economic activities in China. So then, so people say the LPR cut is a step in the right direction and more policies are on the road. So what do you expect? First of all, the LPR cut is absolutely the right direction. Uh, the market has been crying for it for a long time. Uh, although it's smaller than the previous anticipated forecast, at least uh, this cut helped to improve the balance sheet for many companies and also for households. And that's the upside. Mm, and fiscal policy can also play a quite important role in boosting the demand. So then, what do you think are there in the toolbox of the uh, fiscal policy? Um, the fiscal policy has been a major driving force in 2022 for China's growth. But this year, there are already a lot of talks on how much further this measure can go. For the local governments, they are more cautious of taking up new projects. And for central government, of course, they want to see better job market performance. Uh, they want to see more jobs created. That means we have to spend more while maintaining a relatively high quality of growth. So I think more spending from the government side is probably necessary. And so, Aina, so what are your perceptions of the state of China's economy? And has the domestic consumption come back? came back uh, briefly, very strongly, and especially in, uh, you know, the travel uh, during the golden week. Uh, we saw exceptional uh, response to that. Um, things were higher. So, Dan, so what do you think about the uh, general picture of China's economy? Um, uh, if we look at the full year's growth prospects, probably China can reach 5% of GDP target uh, without a problem, just with a natural rebound in consumption and investment. Um, but the markets would still like to see more. And a lot of the small businesses still have problems in, in borrowing and lending. So, Aina, so when we look at the economic recovery this year, usually every month is doing better than the previous months. And we are also seeing the foreign direct investment has been increasing. There are a lot of foreign business leaders visiting China. So do you expect more to come? I mean, it's a comparative analysis. Uh, U.S. is looking very anemic. Uh, it's been downgraded a couple of times. It's going to be around 1% growth if if it doesn't go into recession. Uh, Europe is basically already in recession. So, you know, where you, you don't want to put money there unless you're interested in distressed assets. China is still going to grow at 5 or, uh, 5% or above. 
I mean, obviously, you, you go where there is growth. And, um, you know, this is whether you're an investor or uh, whether you're a manufacturer, um, this is, you know, this is just the, the, the gravity of the market uh, directs you uh, to them. I mean, yeah, I agree with Dan. It's it's really something where the, the government is going to have to maybe do a little bit more to stimulate interest and confidence that China has it. I mean, it, it already has the basis. It just needs that spark, the fire roaring. So then what do you think about the China's foreign direct investment? And the FDI in China now still kept up its momentum, um, but new investment is not that uh, big. Uh, it is a larger trend now that uh, uh, companies, foreign companies and domestic companies combined want to relocate at least part of the uh, production capacity to a broader Asia or even to uh, South America in order to get closer to the end consumer market. Uh, a big incentive for that in the beginning was to get around the cost. Um, that includes tariffs and other non-tariffs barriers. Um, but now then companies do have strong incentive to find new markets. So we might see a bigger trend in overseas direct investment, uh, which is ODI uh, in the years to come. Mm. So then, so what do you think about uh, the uh, high-end manufacturing here in China, like EV market? Um, the high-end uh, manufacturing in general is performing way better than the rest of the Chinese economy. Uh, one reason is the still strong investment drive, uh, not from just from the state, but also from private investors. And, uh, but another driving force is really the, the demand for the new um, green economy. And domestic, domestically, uh, the demand for NEV is still quite high. And if China want to reach its 2030 carbon peak uh, economic goal, then it will replace more cars on the road with NEVs. And for overseas, the situation is similar. Um, EU is having this really aggressive 2035 uh, NEV um, target. And for Britain, its goal is by 2030, it wants to replace all the NEVs on the road, uh, all the cars on the road with NEV. Mm. So for China, it has the capacity to supply the rest of the world. And now it just to have to maintain a high standard uh, in its production. Mm. And take a look at the job market. The unemployed number, it remains stable at 5.2% in May. But it's also the graduation season coming soon. So then how is the outlook uh, you know, looking like for the young graduates? And what's your suggestion to them? And one surprise this year is that uh, the unemployment rate for young graduates has reached a high point already in the first quarter. Uh, usually this only happens in the graduation season, uh, like in July and August. So the job market competition can only get more fierce. Uh, for a lot of those young graduates, they have master's degree. And uh, it, it's going to be a quite difficult year. Uh, my suggest, my advice would be um, staying in big cities uh, used to be uh, the top choice, but now probably inland China is a better market. Uh, I've visited many cities uh, since the beginning of this year. In fact, the economic centers in central and western China, like Chengdu, Kunming, Chongqing, have much better market sentiment than coastal regions. So be flexible in the job 
choice. I think that's my top advice.、Mm-hmm. So, Ina, so what's your suggestion? Well, I have two.、Uh, first off, don't sit at home.、Uh, do, you must do something. Either apply to、uh, another program uh, or uh, take an internship. It doesn't matter. What you need to do is keep learning, and you don't want to be sitting at home feeling depressed. And thinking, oh, well, you know, my education was a waste.、Um, there's every day is an opportunity to learn. If you use that as the center of your attitude towards life, you will go far. The second suggestion I have is that you know, the government is doing part of this, but I mean, there's a call to national service. Uh, getting、um, a lot of these graduates who have, you know, very intelligent, and connecting them with the people.、Mm. Well, then, as we talk about the high unemployment about these young people, China actually is projecting nearly 30 million manufacturing jobs going unfulfilled by the year 2025. So, is there a mismatch really between the education that young people are seeking and the jobs that are very much needed in the manufacturing sector? And、the mismatch has been a long-term problem in China's job market, and in this year, the mismatch is even more obvious than before. Because when we look at the batch、uh, that's coming out of this year, there are tons of supply in the industries、uh, like finance, economics, accounting,、um, but very few in the high-end computer science, like artificial intelligence or computing,、uh, quantum computing. So when we hire, even within the finance industry, if you want to hire、uh, the right kind of student to do some of the entry job, it's also difficult. And given that many of them didn't have the kind of training, the job training in the past three years,、uh, and most of them never did intern. So the com- this is there is a combined factors that doesn't work to their favor. Um, for the university system, they often lack the ability to link the corporate sector with their、uh, with the studies. So the German model has been discussed widely in the past few years,、um, but、uh, we haven't seen any real change、uh, in terms of how to train the students better、uh, to better cater the demand from the industry.、Mm-hmm. So coming back to the general picture, Ina, looking forward to the rest of the year, what's your perception of how China's economy is going to do later this year? I think there will be a, a pickup,、uh, but it'll be slow and gradual, and a lot of it will depend on、um, the internal policies. Externally, things are not looking that great. The U.S., Europe, especially as demand centers are, are going to be hard hit. Obviously, there are problems with debt in the developing world.、Uh, overall, demand is is down significantly,、um, and th- that's going to have a lot of things. As I said,、uh, China is well positioned because it has existing capacity. Key once again, as I always go back to, is Small, medium-sized business entities,、uh, and hopefully the government stimulus can get them confident enough to go forward.、Mm. Well, we're speaking with Ina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also Wang Dan, chief economist of Hansen Bank China. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.